we are averse to the idea of being instructed to live wisely, aren't we? The reality is that we have a tendency, our, our thoughts, our mindset today is I am free to live just the way I want to live. I am the one who can decide the way I want to live. I am the one who determines my behavior, what is acceptable. I am the one who sets the boundaries. I am the one who decides what I will do, what I won't do. That is very much the spirit of the age that we live in, isn't it? One of the things that we see in the Bible is that there is a, a whole history, there is a tradition in, in the Bible that, that God continually, again and again, instructs his people that we are to be challenged in the way that we live so that we learn to live wise lives. Now that sounds, uh, in the 21st century, the idea of being called to live wise lives sounds incredibly constraining and it sounds incredibly boring, doesn't it? It sounds both of those. It's kind of, oh man, is that what Christian faith is all about? Live, live wise lives, live, live lives which are, which are constrained and which are ordered. The reality is that when we look around us, when we look at the, the impact of not living lives which are wise, which are not constrained by a set of thinking, which are not ordered by a way of behaving which is outside of ourselves, then chaos reigns. It's just a mess. And we, in defending ourselves, in defending the idea that we can be the determiner of how we should live, we attribute much of that chaos and crisis to all sorts of other things. You know, it's about, it's about the lack of education, it's about the problems of upbringing, it's about uh, all sorts of other reasons outside of us where we can pin the responsibility of the chaos when the reality is it's because we have not learned to grow up and live wise lives. That's a real challenge. So it applies to us today this wisdom literature of the book of James. If you look in your, old, in your Old Testament, you'll see other wisdom literature. You'll see the wisdom of Solomon. You'll see the wisdom in the book of Proverbs. You'll see wisdom in various other places. It's along the same lines. It's helping us to say, what is going to grab a hold of our thinking so that we, we are reorientated and reshaped to live lives which are wise. This afternoon is about the issue of anger. It's a worship problem. It's a problem of what we worship. What is our focus of worship? That might sound strange, but I'll say it right up front. That's where the problem is. Our anger is an issue of worship. And we're going to work through and see how that's the case. So firstly, we're going to look at the paradox of anger. Then we're going to have a look at the problem of anger. Then we're going to have a look at the Bible's response to it. And then we're going to have a look at this really interesting issue that we see in our reading, religion. And then the Bible's use of that idea of religion. 
So the first is the paradox of anger. I did a quick uh, internet search, what makes you angry? Just ask Google what makes you angry. Came up with all sorts of, um, all sorts of lists where people have done um, surveys, you know, throw a question out and get uh, the, the internet population, whether that's particularly um, representative of the wider, the wider culture is another question. Um, what makes you angry? Maybe if you ask internet people what makes you angry, it's when my server fails or whatever it might be or, you know, some techie thing. But, you know, was, what was really interesting, I found, was that there was all sorts of, you know, the things that really make me angry are injustice and, um, and problems in the world and, and the imbalance of the distribution of wealth so that there's parts of the world that are starving and, when, and there's other parts of the world that aren't. And I think, well, firstly, it helps us to see straight away that there is some anger that is right. The Bible tells us that God's angry. God's angry at sin. That what, do you remember when Jesus goes and, um, and he sees the grave where his friend Lazarus is buried. The word that's used there in terms of his response says that Jesus is angry. He's angry at the effect of sin that death has broken into this world. There is a sense in which there is bits of anger that are right. So it's, it, you know, it's right to be angry at a gang of idiot youths who are driving their souped up hot hatch at 70 mile an hour uh, outside the school gates at quarter past three in the afternoon. It is right to be angry about that kind of thing. It's a right to see the danger to the, to the weak and the vulnerable. But what made me smile is I actually don't think that those kind of things are what really makes us angry most of the time, are they? You know? I don't know about you, but when was the last time that you really snapped at somebody because you were bothered about the issue of world injustice? It's just not the way we are, really, is it? You know, we snap at somebody because of other things. We snap at somebody because it's been a bad day. We snap at somebody because on the way home, um, the car failed and we had to call out the AA and, and it was raining and then once it got going again we hit every red light on the way home and, and all of those kind of things and then you know we'd forgotten to buy whatever it was at the shop and you know they're the kind of things that cause us to be angry so and so said something about me they're the kind of things that really eat up inside they're the kind of things which cause a response in our behavior, which is an expression of anger. And so anger as, as an issue is one of those things which, when we're looking at the issue of life together, is one of the quickest things that challenges our relationships together, isn't it? It is so quick and easy for us to respond in anger towards somebody. Now, one of the things that we see in the Bible is that, and we see it particularly, say, Nehemiah is a good example. He sees, as he prays a prayer of confession for sin, 
and, and he prays forgiveness for sin on, on a big scale. He sees in a way that, that he is part of something bigger. He is part of his sin as a contributor to the bigger issue of sin in all of his people. You go away and you read that in Nehemiah, you can see that. In a way, anger is one of those things that contributes to the problem of the issue that this world faces. There's, um, we won't jump into it, but the, you know, any of you who've done anything about chaos theory, got this idea of some sort of crazy, unbelievable interconnectedness between all sorts of things that are going on in, in, in the world. But the reality is this, isn't it? That when we snap at somebody, when our response is a response of anger, that that adds into the part of, of anger and tension and unrighteousness in the world. And how does that impact the next person that impacts the next person that impacts the next person that builds up and builds up. And because of our contribution to the process of anger and bitterness in the world major crises can happen. Have you ever considered that? That we are a contributor to the problem that we see around us in the world just by little things. We are not disconnected from the problem of humanity. We are not disconnected from the big issues. It's not as though we can be angry in our little bubble and not feel as though that's disconnected from the bigger things that are going on we are together in it so that's the paradox in a way we say it's one thing it's all of these big things and yet it's a whole load of little things that are causing the real issues you know the, the stuff that being honest we all struggle with how many of us can honestly say that in the past month we have not got angry. How many of us can honestly say that we have not responded with anger in a particular situation? And therefore the Bible in this bit of wisdom literature is saying, right, now let's get to grips with that problem. Let's have a look at the text. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 19. We see this, dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In, in other words, James is presenting to us here a little pattern, a little, if you like, set of stepping stones in the way that we tend to behave. It's very powerful, isn't it? We are not ones who are quick to listen. We tend to be actually slow to listen. We tend to be ones who are quick to get angry and not slow to get angry. We tend to be people who are quick with our mouths and not slow with our mouths. That process that we see going on there what James is saying, in effect, is if we look at the way we are, if we look at our behavior, the way we behave ourselves, how we, how we handle our, our, our being, we, we, we've got an issue. 
But the source of it, if you look at, if, if you look at the way it's presented, is because there is anger inside. In a sense, this takes us back to what we were looking at last week. If we were looking at last week, we were seeing this. That we are to consider it pure joy when we face trials. That's, that's just mind-blowing for us to think. That when bad things happen, we are to consider it as part of God's plan in our lives. So those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, that, that when the bad things happen, this is not a crisis, God out of control. This is God working through our lives. Now let's apply that to the issues, the little issues that we face. To apply it in this way. Why are we angry with the little things? Because they disrupt the way we wish our life had been. Is that right? I wish that I could have got home without any trouble. I wish that's how it was. But the reality is that I've ended up with a broken down car in the rain and every red light, and I forgot to buy X, Y, Z at the supermarket on the way home. And therefore, my life, as I wish it had been, has been disrupted. The way I wish it was has been disrupted. I don't want it like this. Who do we believe is in charge if we think like that? Who do we believe is enthroned in our lives if we think like that? The reality is that we see ourselves as enthroned, don't we? We see ourselves as the, the dominant determiner of how our life should be. I have determined that my life should be like this. And if it's not like this, what rises up is anger. So it's reflected back into what we were saying earlier. We haven't learned, we haven't got that mental uh, step in place to say, actually, the way things work out are not there to cause us to be angry. <laughs> they are not there because our life is being disrupted. Our life is, in its entirety, within the hand of the living God. We do not know the impact of the various aspects of our life. I was, past few days, I was um, over at, in Whitby with a gang of students uh, from Hull uh, University the weekend. And uh, we were chatting away and um, one of the guys there, his, his wife was there as well. And... Um, we were just talking, and he said, oh, yeah, where are you from, from Castleford? Well, actually, before that, I was at Pontefract. His eyes lit up. Pontefract, really? And he became really animated. It turns out in 2007, I was over at Hull CU. In 2007, I just about remember it, um, did an evening with them, and it was the evening that we were there that uh, his wife was converted which is just, just great, it's tremendous. We, we looked at the idea of God, is Jesus is mad, bad, or God, was the idea that we looked at. And it was one of those, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that contributed to the breakthrough where she came to faith. <laughs> the interesting thing was, on that very night, I came out of that CU, went round the corner, and my car had a parking ticket on it. I was livid. 
I was really angry that very night. A parking parking fine for parking somewhere where it was so dark you couldn't even see the signs that said don't park here. I was really, really frustrated. And you look at and you think and you, you look at that and you think, how pathetic. How pathetic that that should disrupt me and disappoint me and allow my emotions to well up inside of me in a way which has detracted from what has just gone. I didn't know what had gone on. But doesn't it just remind us, we do not know what has been going on as a result of the events in our life which seem so frustrating. We've got to learn that. You might be going through a really difficult time. You might be feeling as if your life is not the way it ought to be. You might be feeling angry and somebody else might be looking on and saying, I am amazed that they are getting through that in the way that they are. I can't believe that that they're getting through that. How is it that you're being able to be sustained in the way that you are? Because God is working in my life is the answer. And it can be part of the process to them coming to faith. And we do not know what is happening. And yet we live as if we've got the decision in our own hands. And we've got the wisdom. So this is encouraging us to say, right, firstly, put into practice the idea of the confidence that God has got your life in his hands. And therefore, when things happen, look to him. Not to your decision. What happens then when we do not have anger welling up inside of us, when that is not firing our response, we have the ability to do what? To listen. And then to be slow to contribute. James is picking up here on on a lot of the rabbis' thoughts from the Old Testament. A book called the Sirach. It says that in the book of Proverbs as well. It says that the wise man listens a lot, puts his hand over his mouth when he hasn't got anything to say, and responds thoughtfully and carefully and wisely. Guys, imagine the change in the world if we all did that. If everybody in the world stopped, listened, thought, contributed wisely, there's the problem, isn't it? We don't think like that. It does not produce righteousness. And really, just as a quick aside, those of you who look at that word righteousness, and it sounds, doesn't it, as though... If we live and behave in this way, then we get righteous before God. It's not what it's saying. That's not the way James is using the word righteousness in this case. What he's saying is, if we live in this way, if we shut our mouths a little bit more, listen a little bit more, submit to God's uh, dealing in our lives in a way which is wise and thoughtful, if we apply biblical wisdom, it will result in a life which is displaying righteousness, which is displaying a life 
marked by God's hand in it. It is not saying if we behave in this way, we will get righteousness. You know that uh, Abraham is, believes in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He receives the righteous mark of God upon him, the recognition of righteousness. Righteousness in this case is, is a life lived out with a pattern of behavior which is consistent. So there's the problem. Anger inside is the driving force which causes a response bursting out of our mouths because we haven't stopped and listened first. What's the response? If that's the problem, what's the response? The response is this. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Here's the response. The interesting, um, clever, we don't get it in our language, in English, but if you were able to read it in the, in the original language, James is using a clever word here. That word moral filth had two meanings. It could be used like many words, even in our language. Uh, it can be used in different ways. The word that's used there can mean moral, fallen, filthy behavior. And it can also mean earwax. <laughs> Interesting. As soon as I read that, I had that picture of, you know, when Shrek pulls the candle of earwax out of his ear and then lights it. It's just, that's what came to mind. I'm sorry. But, but isn't it clever? The way he uses that word. He's saying this, when what is going on in your life is morally corrupt and filthy, it acts as a deadening, as, a, as an earwax problem to you hearing the word of God that's planted in you. Do you see that connection there? What we've got is the alternative to moral filth or if you like, spiritual earwax, the alternative to that is the accepting of the word that is planted in us. It's a kind of a picture of there's these, there's these uh, shoots of health and goodness, the plants of the word of God in our, that has been planted within us. But it's surrounded by with corruption. It's surrounded with the mass, the thistles and the briars uh, of our moral corruption. In other words, he's saying this, if we need to rid ourselves of a pattern of life which is stopping us from being attentive to God's word. It's astoundingly practical this, isn't it? Saying quite simply, are we living lives which are so filled with moral filth that we can't be attentive to the word that God has planted in us. That is, that applies so practically today. So practically. Can we see how many of our patterns of behavior, the things that we commit ourselves to, the things that we spend time doing, take us into behaviors, into 
attitudes into activities which deaden our ability to respond to the word that is planted in us. You might have, I might have all sorts of issues in that way. And we need to be, we need to be ruthless in addressing this, in recognizing what is my problem? What is it that's going on in my life that is, is deadening my hearing to the spiritual plant that God has driven into my life? Is it a Facebook issue? Is it a gambling issue? Is it an issue of relationships? Is it an issue of my use of time? Is it an issue of my focus on money? Is it an issue with alcohol? What is it? What is it that's going on in my life which is deadening me from being responsive to the word that is planted in me? Now that is really interesting, isn't it? Because he's not saying if you get rid of all of this then we'll be able to replace it with good plants. He's saying, now listen. The plants are there. The word has been planted in you, but you are not hearing it. You are not responding to it. Your ears are spiritually filled with wax because your lives are filled with moral filth. It's amazing, isn't it? James is writing to people who believe in Jesus. He's writing to believers He's not writing to people who have not accepted Jesus. He's writing to people who have. And he's saying in blunt terms, guys, your lives are filled with moral filth. He's not holding back. He's saying the reason that you're not growing, the reason that you're not attentive, the reason that you're filled with anger, the reason that you've got this, these issues in your life is because you have not, you're not dealing with the issues that are deadening your hearing. goes on to say, what's the right response? Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at, his, him, his, looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. It's probably a good thing for some of us. Not to remember what we look like. But here's the picture. Imagine just going to the mirror. And then really the idea is. It not having an impact on you. Mirrors are great things. For the sake of everybody else. And they're incredibly dangerous things for us. You know, the, the mirror can be the mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the m most beautiful of us, all that jazz. We can look into the mirror wanting to be perfect. However, we can look into the mirror and it voids us walking around with something hanging out of our nose. That's a good thing for everybody else if what's hanging out of our nose is removed before we go out. And that's the kind of picture. Imagine if we go up to the mirror and we look in the mirror... And we recognize that we've got something hanging out of our nose. And we walk, we turn away, and instead of removing it, we just forget about it. Now that, that, that's a kind of, that's the kind of way in which he's using this. 
It's a bad thing to walk around all day with something hanging out of your nose. It would be mortifying, wouldn't it? It would be terrible if you spent the whole of the day having, in the morning, been told by your nearest and dearest you've got something hanging out of your nose. You go to the mirror, you walk away, you forget about it, you spend the whole of your day walking around, seeing everybody through the whole of the day, and it's hanging out there, and then by the end of the day, you come back in, and it's still there. Terrible. And yet we live just like that. We live with spiritual issues hanging out of our lives. And we look in the mirror and we forget that that's the issue. That's what's being portrayed here. Don't be like that. Because when we look into the mirror of the word. When we look into that intently as we read in verse 25. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. Not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. In other words, the picture is this. We can spiritually look into the mirror of the word and the perfect law and we can see issues and we can turn away and not do anything about them. And that impacts us and it impacts everybody around us. Or we can look intently into that mirror we can see the issue we can remember the issue we can deal with the issue we can remove it and we can be doers of the word you see do you see the pattern that's there James is really helping us to think here as well look at the law look at the word look at the moral law What did the law in the Old Testament do? What was it there for? It was there to present the nature of God. What is God like? God is like the law that is presented in his word to his people in the Old Testament. In other words, God is a, for example, God is a God who doesn't lie. God is a God who is faithful. God is a God who doesn't kill. God is a God who doesn't cover. You know, all of those kind of things. This is a presentation of what God is like. Now, what's the perfect law? Or let's put it another way. By James's point in the history of the Bible, how do we most perfectly see the nature of God? By James's point in the history of the world. He says it right at the beginning. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And if you want to see the perfect expression. Of the nature of God. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. That is the, the most perfect expression of what God is like. Now, that is a great challenge and a great encouragement, both rolled into one. Because when we look at the life that Jesus lives, when we look into that mirror, when we consider ourselves against that, we see 
all sorts of issues hanging out of our lives, don't we? We see all sorts of challenges and all sorts of problems. When I consider myself in the perfect law that is expressed there, I see problems. But the amazing thing is this, that what we actually see in the promise of God is that when you look at my son in faith, what reflects back is his righteousness. What comes back to you is what you receive from him. That is the amazing thing about the new covenant, about the new law which is established. I look at the law and it says failure, and at the same time I look at the law of Jesus and I find hope. Not in myself, but in him. So therefore I'm going to go away and I'm going to live as though I am that. Not as though I am who I am. That's the, that's the, if you like, the essence of the change that takes place. Whoever looks intently into that perfect law that gives what? That gives freedom. Who gives freedom other than Jesus? Who has the ability, who has the power, who has the authority to grant freedom other than Jesus? When we look at that, we see there is freedom in him. And there is hope. We will be blessed. Jesus, the ultimate reflection of God. Jesus, our hope. So in other words, by looking at Jesus and finding hope in him, we are then able to go away and to learn increasingly to be those who do what we are learning. Now let's have a look at this next little section. There's been a lot that's gone on about the idea of religion. A lot of talk about religion that has been, um, yeah, I guess in, in, in many circles, in Christian circles, even the word religion has become a dirty word. You know, and I can understand that in one sense. I can understand it in one sense when we're very careful about describing what we mean by religion. Because look at what it says now. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. In other words, the picture is your tongue is like this unbridled, crazy horse. That's the picture. This unbridled, crazy horse, this out-of-control horse, which is running rampant. And the contrast is that we can... We can cl what does religion mean in this way? We can be those who are doing what we are doing this afternoon. In this context, this is what religion means. It means those who are taking part... In the worship of God. If we define religion in that way, religion isn't a bad thing, is it? We're all taking part in that this afternoon, aren't we? I, I don't know, are you? Or, or, or maybe you're observing this. Maybe you're just looking on and thinking, this is, this is interesting stuff. You might, you might be violently disagreeing. 
But what we are about this afternoon as a community of people is praising God in corporate worship. And that is the definition in this bit of the text of what religion is all about. In other words, we can be the kind of people who are taking part in afternoons like this. We're gathering together with people and we can sing praise and we can read the Bible. We can pray together. We can listen to, listen to uh, the Bible being talked about, explained and preached about. And we can think, oh, this is great. I really feel as if I'm part of this. We can walk out the door and our mouths are like a horse out of control, unbridled uncontrolled precisely what we see earlier in the text and what that says what this text says to us is this if we're living like that we're not really taking part in this you see that we're not really taking part in this this is this is potentially potentially this is a sham this is meaningless and empty it's just that we're, we're, you know, we're just attending, having a feel-good about the fact that we feel as if we're part of this religious experience, but it is not impacting our day-to-day lives. It's not changing us. It's not dealing with us. It's not reshaping us. I want to encourage you, because that sounds really tough. I want to encourage you with this. Maybe you're just come to maybe you've just come to faith maybe you're just growing in your faith in Jesus what you will find is that the more that you grow the more conscious you are of your sin the more aware you are of the moral filth that's the problem inside all of us you become deeper and deeper in your conscience aware of the problem that we have and yet at the same time those around you will see little changes going on You'll feel worse and they'll see changes for good. When you've really come to faith in Jesus, that is not saying that you won't have, this is not saying, therefore, we can flick a switch and we can walk out of here and if we're truly believers, everything will be fine out there. What it's saying is this, do not compartmentalize our lives. Do not see that we can do the Christian thing for a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon, and then the rest of our lives are not impacted by the faith which we claim to have. Because it goes on to say this, religion that God our Father accepts, listen to that, religion that God our Father accepts, uses the word religion, Religious activity which God accepts. There is an aspect of the use of the word religion which God embraces and loves. What is it? What is it that he accepts? What does he see as pure and faultless? It's religion which has a life impact. Now, for the people in, those, in that day, at that particular time, the particular life impact that was appropriate for them was looking after orphans and widows in their distress. That's one aspect of it. There is a practical outworking of the faith that I claim. Widows and orphans, 
in the ancient world were a, a particularly marginalized and oppressed and ignored people. That does not mean that the only way of expressing our true faith is by helping widows and orphans. What it's saying is, in whatever is applicable and appropriate for your generation, for your context, you live a life where your Christian faith is not in a compartment. It's not in a pigeonhole. I do that on a Sunday, and then the rest of my life I live for myself. It is a life which is now coming under the order and the governance of the faith which I claim by the power of Jesus Christ so that I now start to live differently. Whatever context practically that works out for us. How do I live? What, kind, what is the equivalent to widows and orphans today? Well, there's a multitude. You work it out. You see. There are ways in which your lives can start to be uh, an impact for good because of what you claim. So we do two things. We start to be an impact for good, and secondly, we stop being polluted by the world in which we live. Isn't that interesting? It's saying, effectively, get stuck into the world and don't be polluted by it. There's the two strings to the kite that we hold continually. We're doing good in the world and we're not polluted by it. And the church and the Christian faith has always got it wrong when it strays and leans in one direction to one more than the other. Where it says, right, I'm not going to get involved in the world, so what I'll do is I'll hide away in a monastery. Or, or I'll not get involved, I'll just, I'll just read my... Christian books and hide away and, and I'll never do any nobody will ever know that my Christian faith has practical outcomes as a result of what I am let's not be that but in that engagement let's not be polluted because it takes us this circular kind of wisdom is do you know what if you get polluted it's back to that moral filth which is stopping you from hearing the word which is planted in you Wow. It's some impact, isn't it? It's some change. I look at that and I think, I am, I am a failure. I, I am a failure. When I look at those demands that the word of God is placing on me, I, I am lost, I am broken, I am shattered, I am, I am worthless. And you might be looking at that from the perspective of being a believer, thinking I'm not living the way that I ought to live. You might be looking at it from the outside and saying, I am, I am not going to step into this. Because if this means that I've got to live like that, then I've had it. So let's go back and remind ourselves of where James is calling us to look. He is not calling us to look at a moral set of rules. He's not calling us to look at a historical demand placed on us by God who is distant. He is calling us to look at the perfect expression of the living God, which is Jesus. 
He's saying, in your failure, he succeeded. He's saying, in your inability, he was able. There was a point in Jesus' life where we know that he's taken, his friends have abandoned him. He's been taken, he's been beaten. He's enduring opposition. And then right at that point in time, they wheel into the court people who lie about him. I know what my response would be. Anger and outrage. It's not true. It's not true what they've just said about me. I would have been angry. It would have welled up inside of me if I'd have had the strength to be angry. But Jesus was not angry. You see how he succeeded practically in real tangible ways? When he was faced with just that kind of trial, he was not angry. He was silent. He did not respond. It did not well up and explode from within him. His ears were working. He heard it all. His mouth was silent. Because he knew that this was God's will. This was the work that he and his father had determined before the world had been created. This is where we are going to deliver the greatest explanation of the nature of who we are. By me sacrificing myself before you and you bringing down upon me the, the wrath of a father in righteous judgment against sin. I will be there. And at that moment, in his humanity, he was not angry. That is great news. Because he succeeded. He triumphed. And therefore, in all of my failure against these demands, I know that I am still accepted by Jesus. My judge is my elder brother. My judge is my friend. My judge is the one who stands in my place. My judge one day is the one who will welcome me. Not because of my righteousness. But because of his righteousness which he has clothed me in. And my failure against these wisdom demands will be considered as though I succeeded. Isn't that great news? Don't we need that more than anything?